Good evening and welcome to the Sports Bar Show. Chewing the fat and talking balls as we uh, often do and uh, in the Sports Bar, Brent Peters. Good evening, sir. Good evening. How's it going? Not too bad. Yourself? Brilliant. Absolutely top of the pile. <laughs> top of the pile? What's that supposed to mean? <laughs> I'm feeling great seeing as it's, uh, what time is it, 8 o'clock? Listen, hold on, hold on. You're not feeling great at all because you were telling me you've been running to the toilet about 50 times today. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, well, that were, that were late after, yeah, that was this afternoon. Yeah, I were actually, uh, but it, it's obviously done. <laughs> I've cleared out whatever <laughs> I did once anyway. We don't want to be talking about that, dude. Mind you, it, it, we, you know, we talk ball, so we might as well talk shit. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, from the, from the social media activity, mate, that's exactly what we're doing, talking <laughs> shit. <laughs> but uh, pleasure as it always is, Brent, to uh, do these sports bar shows. We're getting a lot of positive feedback, which uh, is always good on the on the social media platforms and quite a lot to talk about and, a, and another fantastic guest again. Well, listen, we have got a fantastic guest and I'm over the moon we've got him and, and you know what I'm like when... Ever there's anything to do with Manchester United, Manchester United comes number one, everything else is second. And tonight, Manchester United are live on BT. But listen, I put our guest first because that's how good he is and that's how special he is. Uh, so dear. there you go, pal. <laughs> anyway, Brett, before we get cracking, there's a few things to talk about because I know there's a couple of things you wanted to pick up on. And uh, one of those was the departure of Eddie Al from Bournemouth. Done a great job down there on the South Coast. Yeah, it's a tremendous job. I mean, uh, I, I think uh, I think British football were willing that, that uh, Bournemouth would stay up. You know, I think if anything, everybody, he's such a likeable guy and he's done such a terrific job down there. Under, I mean, people will go on, on about saying he's had this, he's had that. Listen, Bournemouth, have, uh, it, it's kind of like Burnley, and I'm not being disrespectful to Burnley at all like, when I say this. You know, clubs like Bournemouth and Burnley, you, you never think of them being a, a, a Premier League club, but the, but Burnley's a well-established Premier League team now and have been for quite some time. And that, that comes down to you've got to give the board a lot of credit, but then you've also got to, from the board, you've got to give the manager who they've got in surmounting credit. And, it, and it's kind of same down at Bournemouth. You know, they've, 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 they've always backed Eddie Howe. Yeah. Now, you know what I've always said? I said, I, I've always thought that uh, managing and coaching is two different things. But uh, I'd always say that Eddie Howe is more of a coach than a manager. Uh, in my, but how can I say that in some respects? Because he's managed, he's had to do both jobs. I don't, I'm, I'm sure I'm right in saying that he hasn't kind of got a director of football above him at Bournemouth. I might be wrong. I stand to be corrected. If he has, well, he's kind of probably just done the coaching side of things. But if he hasn't, and he's he's took the manager's mantle as well as the coach's mantle, then um, yeah, he's he, he's he's kind of uh, done a really excellent job. But I think where's next for him? I'm not trying to retire Roy Hodgson off because you know Roy Hodgson's steeped in in football he's a he's a he's a great guy and he's a great coach and a great manager i'm not trying to uh kind of retire him but you know what would be a great move i think for a couple of seasons that crystal palace appoint 
Eddie Howe, not as the manager, because obviously Roy's there, but working with Roy, working with him and taking a bit of pressure off Roy and uh, allowing him to, with eventually, he'll, as, as Roy starts to think about retirement, he'll take over at Crystal Palace. Well, that, that's a good call because a couple of weeks back when we had Jonathan Norcroft on from the Times, he was talking about, you know, the departure of possibly Odson, you know, calling it a day. And Eddie Howe would be a, a pretty good replacement, don't you think? I think so. I think he deserves to be in the... I, I really think he deserves to be in the Premier League. I, I really do. Uh, and I think that Crystal Palace would be a good fit for him, especially under the circumstances of the, the you know, the fact that Roy Hodgson, like we say, we're not trying to retire him or anything, but, no. you know, it is a pressure job, his, his management, and uh, we all know that, and extremely pressured, and, and Roy's not getting any younger. So to have somebody like Eddie there with him, with a view to taking over eventually, I just think it, 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 it's, yeah. it, it's probably a, a partnership made in heaven. Yeah, but with the season, you know, but we say the season's, you know, come fast upon us, but we don't know when the season's going to start and there could be some more managerial casualties before then. So there could be a few opportunities uh, out there for Eddie and, and Tilson is, a, you know, his second in command. Well, there could be. There could be. Uh, we'll have to see, watch this space, but obviously... You know, they've both they've parted on by, you know, mutual consent. They've both agreed and uh, the parting of the ways. And sometimes, you, you know, it, it's probably it's probably the correct decision in a lot of ways. Um, but it's sad because he, 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 and he's, you know what, even under a lot, a lot of pressure, he's handled himself impeccably with the press and, and media and out there. He's, he's always come to the forefront and he's never made excuses. He said it as it is. And, uh, you know, you can only give him... Football can be really cruel at times, as we know. It can be the greatest game, you know, when you're on a high or at the other end of the, uh, of the spectrum. But then when you're at the bottom end and things like this happens, it, it, it can be really, really cruel. Yeah. And uh, but, but that brings me to the next one that I want to talk about, Scott Parker. Because you know what? I, he's, I, he's on the crest of a wave, isn't he? That guy. Well, well yeah, but he wasn't. He wasn't eighteen months ago, was he? You know, let's no. be honest. He's 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 seen both sides now. I mean, don't forget that Scott Parker went in there as a a kind of a, you, you know he was a player, a, a former player, and you know uh, Fulham were in a bit oh, of disarray at the well. time, and and they they gave him the job as as temporary, and he tried to save their uh, Premiership status, but unfortunately he couldn't. Uh, as you know, it's difficult, and especially when you're taking over toward probably the last quarter of the season when somebody else has had them previously. Um, but you know what? He, he went about his job. I, I listened to his, his interview after they'd gone down. I listened to his interviews when, when he actually got the position. And he comes across, he's a bit like from the Eddie, Eddie I mould. He's a really, really kind of nice guy. Uh, and you know what? I rode the moon for him last night when they when they actually did it. He's got you know the pressure must have been intolerable these last you know a few months uh, you know to try and get Fulham back. And there's not many managers can boast that you know when they've had a relegation and they've bounced back the year after. Not many can say, it, but he's in there now with the with the elite that he's got if, his team after a relegation. He's got them back up there. Yeah, but if you remember him as a player, though, Brent, a very uh, intelligent footballer, Scott Parker. Oh, maybe, oh, maybe, oh, yeah. maybe should have played for England a lot more than he did. Well, I agree. 
I agree. But again, I come to this, you know, I come to this manager and coaching is totally different. And I, I, I kind of wonder put Scott Parker in the mould of a, of a, of a manager that uh, yeah. is going to put uh, a bit of fire in somebody's belly, you know, to get out. But there's, there's ways and means of doing things. And obviously, he's, he's gone about it his way. And, uh, you, you know, listening to his, his post-match um, interview last night, you know, it was brilliant to listen to how he's got in the players' heads and everything else, and you know they've really won to what he's what what he's wanted to achieve, and uh, and and obviously they've gone out there and done it for him, and I'm I'm really pleased. Yeah, definitely, and uh, it should be interesting next season. But of course, he was part of that Charlton and and West Ham, weren't he? he was he, you know he played for both them clubs? So yeah, you know, yeah, but. You know, he's starting on on the path. He's he, he's been given a chance. Like I said, he was given a chance at Fulham uh, under difficult circumstances. After they got relegated, how many how many clubs would have stuck with? You know, who'd have stuck with him at that point? You know, because he was only in as a temporary manager. Uh, but they did. Uh, they bought into him, and basically, the the squad, the players, the, uh, everybody else has. Uh, and Scott have, have repaid the faith into the Fulham directors, owners, and uh, they've gone back into the Premier League where they want to be. Yeah. Well, our guest is waiting patiently. We're going to bring him in in a few minutes' time. But uh, COVID-19 and the football, <laughs> the football League. Well, listen, listen, let's break this down because I'm, I'm, really, I'm getting a bit tired with it all now. So let's know, break that's, it. Why I'm, that's why I'm laughing, Brent, but it's, well, it's not well, funny. Well, well, let's break it all down, right? And this is where it gets crazy. People are going mad on social media blaming the FA. Let's put one thing straight here. The FA aren't making these decisions. It's the government. The FA have got to speak to the government and, you know, obviously the government have got to say whether they believe that what they are trying to implement is right under the current circumstances. So... The simple fact is, let's break it down. The simple fact is, it's not the FA. So when everybody's going on social media saying, you know, it's the uh, lunatic running the asylum, right, let, 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 let's not put the blame on the FA. It's the government. That's the first thing. The second thing is, what I'm going to say here, as the government made, do half the things that the government, what on this COVID, does it make sense? No, it doesn't. On one hand, they're trying to prevent it and they put, they put uh, situations in place to try and prevent it, right? But on the other hand, you know, they contradict themselves with what they're letting people do. So it contradicts. It doesn't make sense. And that's where I think it gets people's blood boiling. Like, yeah. for instance, again, if we break it down again, does it make sense? And I'm only asking the question, because to me it doesn't make sense, but I'm asking the question that... We've seen it last week where Blackburn, Darwin, all Greater Manchester, even Rosendale Valley where, where I am, uh, even going out to Bradford, Rochdale, all those areas have had, have had to have special measures put in place, all those areas. So obviously there is, you know, the figures are saying that we're creeping up where we shouldn't be. We're in a dangerous area. So if we're in a dangerous area, what sense is there in a pre-season friendly, 
right, where you've got players that... 22 that, strangers. That, 22 strangers, but you've got players in your club that are from different parts of the region. They're not all... Some could be from Blackburn, some could be from Trafford, some could be from Rochdale, all coming... To, so you don't know what they're doing away from your social bubble, you, the club. They don't know yeah. what you're doing. And then what they're doing, they're letting them go out and play a pre-season friendly where there's context for. Now, bearing in mind, Manchester United are playing tonight, but they've got top medical people on, on, in the grounds. It, it, it's strict what goes on. Everything's being checked and double-checked and treble-checked, everything, right? They're getting, they're getting uh, medically checked before the game. They're getting medically checked after the game. Yeah, we the, re can't re the resources are already in place. Yeah, we can't do that. So what? all of a sudden, they're doing that. So does it not make a mockery? They're having to do that. But yet, say, for instance, a non-league football team can play a, a friendly, right, out there with a club that's in a, 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 an hot area where it's, it's kind of the, the figures are up that you're, you're in an area where uh, people are susces susceptible to it, yeah. right? And they're going to go out and play for an hour and a half and it could be a team from, let's say, from an area that's not really under threat at the minute. But all of a sudden, because they're mixing for an hour and a half and they're in contact sport, and there's nobody to check them, there's no medical people, so all of a sudden, they're taking it away with them. They could be carrying it, and it goes on. So to me, personally, is it safe to play football at the minute outside the Premier League, outside the, is it safe? Because we can't, I don't think it is. So if it's not safe, why did the FA or the government just say, listen, for however many weeks, forget football, blanket throw a blanket up. over it, blanket it. It's not happening. And it stops all this. That's yeah. my opinion. We're probably going to talk uh, about this quite a lot over the next uh, couple of weeks as we head towards the season, if it does kick off. But we've got a special guest tonight and we need to bring him in. Right, let me tell you that. And it is a real special guest. It's got a bit of an international, or a lot of an international flavour. We haven't had many internationals on here, you know. Um, but anyway, he was born in Clydebank, Scotland. He made 131 appearances for Dundee and scored 20, Dundee United and scored 26 goals. In 1990, he moved to Coventry City, made 100 appearances, scoring 28 goals. And if you remember back in time in 1993, I think Alan Shearer had, had got a kind of a, a, a bit of a long-term injury at Blackburn Rovers. Yeah. And our special guest tonight uh, was sought after. And Blackburn Rovers, Kenny Dalglisha, I think it would have been, paid £1.5 to Coventry City, where he brought him into uh, Blackburn Rovers to kind of replace or fill the void that Alan Shearer yeah. had left while he was injured. He made 144 appearances with 46 goals. And obviously, as we know, Blackburn Rovers went on to win uh, the Barclays Premier League and he was part of that squad. Unfortunately, he didn't play as many games as he probably would have liked because he suffered not one broken leg, but two, which was a real cry shame. But you know what? In 1999, uh, our late friend... Bobby Robson signed him for Newcastle United, where he went on and made 39 appearances, scoring four goals. He's had 53 international caps for Scotland. 
He worked regularly for BBC Five Live, Sky Sports, Satan and Sports, BBC Scotland, Channel Five, and our very own Radio Lancashire. Would you welcome a terrific guest tonight in Kevin Gallagher? Let's bring Kevin in. Good evening, guys. There, there you go. go, pal. Are you okay, Kevin? Top I'm man. very well. I'm very well. That, that's the longest introduction for a long while, that was. They dug that <laughs> one out of the archives. Listen, everyone, everyone, everyone says that. That's my party piece now. So, But it's true, isn't it? Everything's true. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's great to have you. It's great to have you on the show. Really oh, is. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's it's good because you're right in saying about the the COVID and thing. It, it changed a lot of mentality in football, and it, I think everybody thought deeper on it. And I think now, yes, there is games back, but it just shows the divide between the top level of football down to where where you are at Bakeup. It's uh, it's never ending. It's it's hard, and you know you fight at grassroots to try and get. The, the big clubs to, to put a bit of cash down. I mean, I mean, a million pound here and there to a big club is, is nothing nowadays. And just donate it to the grassroots clubs. And to be fair, it would be brilliant uh, because there's a lot of clubs would, would get on somewhere. And I mean, here in places now that some of the top clubs are, are making people redundant again. So it's just crazy the, the situation that the, the world is in at the minute. Yeah. Do you get out to watch any, do you manage to watch any non-league football, Kev? Not really, no. Well, generally, what I'm doing at the minute, like, well, not at this moment, but generally the weekends, uh, they're filled up with me following Blackburn Rovers and, and covering with yeah. Radio Lancashire. Uh, and then on the, the, the Sunday, I'm, I'm generally doing stuff for BT Sport Europe and, and covering kind of the Bundesliga and things. So I've been, you know, you can't get out at the weekend and, and do things. And during the week, I've got my, my soccer school and I've got my one-to-ones and every night. So I'm, I'm very, very busy with that. And I've got one or two kids that are just getting ready to sign with football clubs. But obviously this pandemic happened and they're, they're, they're being delayed uh, for that side of it. But, yeah, no, it's, I think sometimes you just got to get on with things, uh, but do it the way that the government are trying to decide. But as, as Brent said earlier, like it's, it's frustrating as hell. So it is. Uh, but uh, it is a pleasure to have you with us this evening. Want to go? We usually kind of go through your career and just talk about different things. And I want to start off Dundee United. Was it a shot or was it a cross against Barcelona? <laughs> I'll tell you what. I wish I had a pound for every time someone asked me this because I'd be a I watched, I watched it this afternoon and I thought I'm not too sure about this. Do we feel? Right, it's really weird. It's, I mean, at the time, I was, what was I? I think I was 20 years of age. I was, pro- I think it was actually the youngest man in the park, I think, if I'm not mistaken. I think Martin Tyler was a commentator. But um, when we worked on set pieces, as you do in the professional gaming, and we worked on set pieces and throw-ins, corner kicks, and it was a throw-in. And basically, tried to take it quick, because our, our aim was to try and get in behind Barcelona very, very quickly, because they were very, very talented team. And, we took the quick throw on and, and Paul Sturrock's touch was absolutely shit. Honestly, it was so bad. <laughs> the ball came flying back at me. And it was one of those, it was, it was total instinct. It came back at me and I thought, I'm just hitting it. And as I hit it, my, it was like, you could see it. It was like hitting a golf ball when you're watching it just fly away into the right direction. And I'm thinking, that's going over Zuby's head here. I'm going to score a goal. And next thing I knew, I scored. And, 
I mean, the unsurprising thing is after the game, like the media was on you because it's a, a big quarterfinal in a European competition. There was millions of, of media there and the microphones were stuck in my face. And basically they came out and said, did you mean it or not? And I kind of, I think I kind of said, yes, I meant it. But when I watched it back in video and it plays back in your mind, I still don't know. It was just pure instinct that came to me yeah. and flew in the back of it. But I wouldn't say it's one of the best goals in my career, but I'll tell you what, I'm well known worldwide for it because it's against Barcelona. You certainly mm. are. Uh, just had a just had a picture up, up there of uh, of that game. Uh, what do you remember about the game, Kev? Oh, brilliant! You know, Terry Venables was the manager. Uh, they had Mark Hughes up front alongside uh, Gary Lineker. Uh, the, the talk in Spain at the time they weren't doing so well at the time, uh, Barcelona, but just our journey itself as Dundee United and, and Europe had been quite successful anyway in past years. Mm. So we didn't threat Barcelona. Uh, Barcelona probably hadn't even really heard of us. So we kind of took it in more stride. And, and basically, when they turned up and you just seen the superstars, the Spanish internationals, you know, Zubizarreta, a world-class goalkeeper, and you've got two British strikers there, you're thinking, oh, my God, this could be a nightmare. But, you know, we just we didn't worry about opposition in that time. Jim McLean, for me, the manager, was way streets ahead of, of a lot of people. And, I, and even at that time, I'd probably say on equal par with Sir Alex Ferguson. And the tactics, we stuck to our own uh, trend of what we could do. And fortunately for us, uh, we got that early goal. It settled down there a little bit, but fortunately it rumbled Barcelona because I think Mark Hughes and Gary Lineker both missed sitters that night that possibly could have put the tie to sleep, but it gave us an opportunity and we we always fancied ourselves away from home. I think we were better. We were kind of uh, counter-attacking, change the system during the game and, and manage it. And we managed to do that at the Camp Nou and, and come away with a 2-1 victory. And, you know, a 3-1 overall victory was, was phenomenal for us um, because Dundee United, I mean, only a few years earlier, got to the semi-final of the European Cup and, and lost to a bribery through Roma. Uh, so they got close to the big competition. Uh, fortunately for this one there, uh, we managed to to wield the axe and get rid of Barcelona in the quarterfinals. Yeah. But your move to Dundee was a bit strange because everyone everyone had you written down as, as for joining Celtic, but that didn't happen due to uh, someone talking about you should have some Guinness inside you. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's uh, crazy, crazy. I mean, my, I mean, fortunately for me, I'm from a footballing family and my grandfather's an absolute legend around Celtic Park. And, you know, my destiny was very similar to another footballer I played there with Paul McStay and his brother Willie. When you've got family relations who are successful at Celtic, generally you are going to be in playing those positions in that team. Uh, but when it came down to it, I mean, 13 years of age, the managers were talking to you. And, I mean, I was brought up with my dad in a pub, uh, understood the pub rituals. I seen drunk people, I seen gang fights, I seen people being shot. I seen it all in Glasgow. It was just, it was horrendous. But when it was time to go and sort of say, right, this is your football career's kicking off, uh, I started going around to trials and I went to my local club, Clyde Bank, who were part time at the time, but they were a very good side. You know, a, a top side, they played in the top division. Uh, I went there and their, their chairman at the time, Jack Steedman, uh, wanted me to go on trial. 
Uh, so I said, yeah, I'll go on trial, but it was with the under-16s. I was under 13, and I was like seven stone, five foot two, and some of these under-16s were like men. And I thought, this is weird, but I went to the game anyway. I turned up, I was on the bench, and I thought, why am I actually here? Because I'm not really going to get a game, because these were all big men I was going to be playing against. But they stuck me on for about 20 minutes, and I ran the show. Uh, before I got home, the chairman had phoned my dad and, and basically wanted me to sign for Clyde Bank. But I thought that was a little bit too too quick to, yeah. to sort of jump in. So I left it, and then we went to, to Glasgow Celtic. And I thought, this is it. This is my destiny. It's, it's pointing in my direction. And we went to Celtic Park. I uh, brought my Uncle Tommy down from, from Dundee. He's a former Dundee player. So he knew the game a little bit, uh, knew the understanding of, of the football side of it. And basically, we went with my dad and we went to Celtic Park and they had everybody out, you know, everybody apart from the bands. They were out. The, the whole board was there. It was in the boardroom and every single person was there. It was, it was wow. For me, as a young Celtic fan, it was a wow factor, and I couldn't believe it. And everything was going so well. And we're talking, and, and Billy McNeil, at the end of the conversation, and it was like a finishing line, and he did say, well, the only thing I'm a little bit concerned, pal, is you're a little bit small, and we need to get you on the Guinness. And as you said, well, look, Billy, I'm 13 years of age. I've been on the butt fast since I was 10, pal. So, realistically, it's... Uh, it was only about three years behind the times I'd started drinking earlier. But no, on a serious note, it was really weird uh, to tell a 13-year-old kid that I need to go into Guinness. I found that really strange, being brought up in a pub. Uh, and I think it was just the fact that I used to think football players were holier than holy. And when I became one, I realised we're not. And it was, uh, it was a strange one. But me being the rebel that I was and wanting to be me, uh, decided against it and my dad was quite disappointed at that time because I'd made the decision then I says I can't sign for a football club that want me to drink alcohol because I had thought that footballers were were all right and I went up to Dundee United and Jim McLean was brilliant uh, I wish I knew uh, what I know about him now uh, I wish I knew back then because uh, he was a hard taskmaster uh, he was iron rod uh, disciplinarian, but I'll tell you what, his knowledge in football was second to none. Uh, the knowledge he passed across to us, um, coaching theories that he'd done were way, way ahead of his time. And it was a, for me, it was probably the best place that I could learn. But I lived with that, uh, of taking that decision. And I made headlines, and the headlines weren't the grandson of the legendary. It was Kevin Gallagher. And that's what I wanted yeah. to do. And that's what I set my task out to do. And that was the carrot. I wanted to be me. I wanted to be successful as me and not as the grandson of, of Patsy Gallagher. Yeah, because there weren't, there weren't many, Kev, that did come south of the border. If you look, you know, if you think back over the last 20 or 30 years, probably not many have, have succeeded south of the border. No, I mean, in my eyes, I mean, I, you go back and I started, I follow Kenny DeGleese really and, when Kenny went to Liverpool in 77, I was 11 years old and you're watching and, and, and you're getting people like Alan Hansen that are there and you see all these Scots players, Billy Bremner's the Graham Sunnises, you see all these guys, top Scottish internationals, and they're all playing in England and I always thought one day I'd like to try it. I'd like to try and go abroad and play football and um, I managed to do it. Uh, I 
little bit probably before my time, but I think the timing was was right. I just think probably at the time Coventry were brilliant for me. No disrespect to them, but I needed to get out of Dundee United, and Coventry gave me that opportunity. And you know, I mean, it was fantastic. I knew people there. David Speedy there beside me in the picture. Uh, Kevin Drinkle had just moved from Rangers. Uh, Cyril Regis, an absolute England legend. So uh, guys at that club, Trevor Peak, Brian Klein, uh, Steve Agrizovic, Brian Burrows, guys for the 87 Cup final uh, in the FA Cup. Uh, they are these guys and they welcome me with massive open arms. And I mean, I did struggle when I went to England. I, I really did. Uh, I struggled with the accent. And I know you're going to laugh at it, but the Scottish accent, um, my Scottish accent has completely changed. I get stuck when I go back home because I don't I don't have the broad uh, Glasgow accent that I once had. Uh, and, and I just thought, well, I need people to have a conversation with. And because it was broad and you go down to the Midlands, you had the right mix of, of, of people from the Midlands, from south, from north. And, and, and they really found it struggle with my voice and the way that I spoke. So... Basically, uh, I started having to read more books and actually sort of learn the English language a little bit more and, and stop being the, the slang rap scene is, but for Glasgow. Yeah, yeah. well, I, re- I was listening to an interview this afternoon, Kevin. Uh, you did have that rap scene is bit uh, voice when you uh, looked a bit <laughs> like this, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm and I wish I could have that hair now. <laughs> Most sure I'm going for, though. <laughs> oh, that's not nice. I got that. <laughs> that was an interview, I think, well, with uh, one of our other guests, uh, John Elm. Quite a few. That was when you were up at uh, still at Dundee, yeah. I believe. Aye. Oh, God, I can't. I mean, it's going back then. I mean, I, I my last photograph that looked very, very similar to that was in my wedding photograph. Where the night before my wedding, we, uh, my brothers decided to take me out. It wasn't a stag party because we already had that, but they wanted to take me out the night before. And unfortunately, when I got the next morning, I had red eyes and I forgot to put the, the old gel in my hair. And when I got to the, the church, the missus was walking down the aisle with her face tripped me because she couldn't believe that uh, I had this big bouffanted hairstyle. And uh, that's just reminded me of that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, you were just talking there about your time at Coventry. Did you... Uh... Enjoyed the uh, Coventry experience before moving on to Rovers. I loved it. Uh, Coventry was brilliant. Once I settled in, I, mean, I think, as I said, I went down in the January. I had so many hard games with Nottingham Forest, with Stuart Pearce, at Millwall with Pat Vanden Howe, Tottenham with Charlton, Mark Reed, people we played against, with uh, Tony Derigo, Chelsea, I think Tony was at the time. Uh, I was playing against all the best fullbacks in England when I went down. And there was no rest. And in Scotland, you know, you, you play, you kind of gave 110% against Celtic and Rangers, and then you gave 90% against Aberdeen, Hibbon Hearts, and then you gave 75% against the other teams. And it wasn't right to do, but you could find that you could take the foot off the gas a little bit. But for me, coming to England every single week, there was a different player, a different challenge. And you know, to come up against England's top two left-backs and Stuart Pearce and Tony Garrigo at that time as well and pass with flying colours basically helped me kind of settle in to where I wanted to play. But I wasn't a natural right winger and John Sillett wanted me to be a natural right winger. Uh, you know, I really was, I was a number 10 in today's game, shall we say. 
I like to play off a striker. I like to set people up through the central areas. And David Speedy was harping on all the time and he kept saying to John Sillett, you need to get Kevin through the middle. He's a far better player there. And, and John Sillett said, no, I want him in the wing. Um, and unfortunately, John got the, the sack. And fortunately for me, Big Terry Butcher came in. And having played against Big Terry only a matter of probably months earlier, uh, when he went to Glasgow Rangers, um, he knew I could play centre-forward. And the first thing he'd done when he came down, he, he says, come on, we man, you're up front for me. And that changed the whole outlook for me. Uh, people started then realising what I was about. Uh, and, and and that was what basically happened. Big Terry changing my position. But for me, the people at Coventry City were fantastic. Uh, the three years I had there were, were magnificent. And uh, we kept our house there for good five, six, seven years uh, after we left uh, until we decided that here in Blackburn uh, or in the Ribble Valley inside the Blackburn that this is where we decided that we were going to stop and this is where we found our family and this is where all our classes of family friends and, and we've settled here. Yeah, because you've been fortunate. You've lived in some nice places. You were living up down in Stratford-upon-Ever, weren't you, when you were down at, at Coventry, I believe, before moving up north? yeah. Oh, it was. You know, I mean, that's a lovely area. You know, it's, and I mean, when I moved to Coventry, I really didn't have an idea about Coventry. You read about the history of it being rebuilt about the war, Lady Godiva and things like that, and you get all excited. Oh, there's something they can run into a lot of Coventry. It was unbelievable. But then we kind of looked around and we looked in different areas and I got friendly with one or two players. Uh, they were up uh, towards the Leicester area. I thought, I don't really want to go that way. And we discovered Stratford upon Avon. Down there, it was a nice village called Wellsbourne. We're in the war. There's a lot of history about Wellsbourne and the war time. And we thought, fantastic, this looks the place for us. Uh, we seen a house and we managed to get it and we settled there. Uh, and it was actually, I think if I'm not mistaken, there was our house and the next door neighbour's house. was One was a gym and one was the church for during the war days uh, when all at Wellsbourne was an airbase. So it was, there's quite a bit of history about where we lived. And unfortunately, when we sold up and moved away, you know, we've only been down a couple of things, but we managed to fulfil a couple of things, like go to Warwick Castle and visit things like that, get to Shakespeare Theatre and, and do things. But it's kind of weird when it's on your doorstep, you didn't do these things. So we had to go back and visit our old house to do it. Yeah, and then you signed for for Kenny, one point five million pounds. But you you weren't too sure. You had to look on a road atlas where Blackburn were, I believe. Yeah, well the thing was it was two and a half million. Everybody I know everybody says one and a half. It was two and a half million. But what Coventry did, they bought Roy Wegerly because Kenny wanted basically it was almost like a swap deal. So the whole thing was two and a half million. But the one and a half million done me a massive favour because you think of it six months earlier. They bought this guy called Alan Shearer for three million. And it was an outcry. It's a ridiculous amount to pay for a football player and things. And I'm thinking two and a half million. I'm going for I'm thinking it could be it could be even worse here to get a stick I'll be getting. So uh no, it was just one of them. You know, when Kenny came calling, uh there was no doubt about it. I was it was going to go somewhere, but it was weird because there was no mobile phones. And that's the weirdest thing. When you talk when I try and tell my children today how they were contacting me, they just laugh because they think the mobile phones were still invented back then. But Kenny phoned me, it was Bobby Gould was the manager at the time. Gould, he said to me, he says, Kevin, uh, 
have you got an agent? I went, yeah, I've got an agent. He says, oh, he says, you didn't need one. I could be your agent. He says, here, I've got a bit of paper here with nine clubs on it. Where do you want to go? And I thought, you're having a laugh. Like, I says, like, I'm not even thinking about leaving at this moment in time. So I don't understand that. But he said, look, there's nine clubs. And he didn't know at that time. I'd been kind of tapped up by a journalist for Manchester City. And Terry Phelan had just signed for him for two and a half million. So Man City spent the money. So basically I got in touch with the journal because I knew Bobby Gould who was trying to get rid of me and the journal went, look, they've no Man City, they've no money anymore. Uh, they've spent it on, on the lad feeling. So they, I don't think they're going to come for you. But it was all over the Manchester newspapers and I was getting things uh, posted through to me and I couldn't believe it. And I was thinking, oh, that's out the window. But uh, none of the clubs were Blackburn. Uh, it was unbelievable. And... I thought, well, can I get time to think of it, uh, speak to my wife, have a chat, and then we can decide on that. And they went, yeah, yeah, brilliant, that'd be great. Um, so basically, that's what we did. I went home, and then Goldie phoned me. He says, Kevin, be in at three o'clock. Kenny's going to phone you uh, for Blackburn. So I spoke to Kenny. I was like, yeah. He says, can you come tonight? And I was like, whoa, it's, it's a, I don't know, it's about two and a half, three hours, I think it was. Uh, to get up to, to where Kenny was in Southport. And I thought, well, we can try and get up, but I need to get dog sitters, we get something organised so me and my wife can come up. We went, yeah, no problem. We'll see you at 11 o'clock uh, in Southport. Uh, so we got a dog sitter, uh, drove up, done the deal with Kenny that night, uh, Ray Harford, and the morning we met them. And Kenny just says, look, guys, uh, just when you're driving in behind us, uh, just shut your eyes because... Blackburn's a shithole at the minute. I just I thought, oh my God, I just turned around and looked at my missus, Alien, and I just said, she just looked at me, she went, what are we doing? I was like, I don't know yet. I said, and, and then we approached Ewood Park, and of course it was not the Ewood Park as we know it now, it was the old Ewood Park, and they pulled one side down, and I thought, oh my God, what am I coming to here? And I went in, to be fair, it was very homely. You met everybody, everybody, uh, you met the, the local rats and everything that were running about the streets. It was unbelievable. And uh, we went in and uh, eventually signed the contract and, and that was it. And so went back to the, the hotel. The wife went away back down south and she, and she phoned me at the hotel and, and she went, Kevin, what have we done? <laughs> he says, this place is a nightmare, but it's just going back. And when Kenny phoned, he was just touching on that road atlas. Because, as I said, no mobile phones. Uh, when Kenny hung up and he said, we need to meet in Southport, we're going to Blackburn now. It looks like we're signing for Blackburn. And we just went, where the hell is Blackburn? It must be near Liverpool somewhere. And when we looked, like, it was like a big, big surprise. But the, the hardest thing was actually when we drove into Blackburn um, the next, what was it, two days later. And uh, I couldn't find Ewood Park. I'd gone totally the wrong way. And I had to stop at a garage and, and ask them, uh, where the football ground was and, and he just said turn right and go about 200 yards it's behind these buildings and because it's a mill town all the buildings and roads looked the same back then but uh, we got there and it got there eventually and to be fair it's what a club to be part of as I managed to see it at its worst and see it at its best and grow up with the people that actually have been working there now for about 40 years and I think that's that's a special thing that, that I hold, and I, I probably speak for a, a load of the guys in the 90s squads. Uh, 
the, the, the newer version of player at Blackburn, they don't share anymore with them. So it's it's a kind of difficult one now, but, you know, it's a great club and I love it. And I love the area, I love the people here and, and that's why I've stayed. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that just on that, just on that, just on that one. Uh, I actually moved. I had a furniture removal business, and uh, and we actually got the contract of moving all those houses out that were all those tourist roads going down to uh, down to Ewood. What Jack Walker, Jack Walker actually um, bought all them, and we had the we had the job of moving them all out. Yeah. Oh, I think it goes by a long time, especially that last house where they they found the. They found a building. Yeah, they did, yeah. They found a body. They didn't find my £50 note. (laughs) (laughs) You have £50 notes back in. Probably not, no. That's probably why they didn't find it. (laughs) No, but yeah, yeah, like you say, you know, the the streets, I can remember it, where the streets and where the club were, and you look at it now, it's a... It's just you can't credit it, can you? I mean, like you say, you've seen it. You've seen it back in the day and you've seen it now. Uh, yeah. And it's you, you know, and, it, and again, that's all credit to the great Jack Walker. You know, I mean, brilliant. Yeah, and to I mean, and to win a premiership. Oh, to go on to that was was phenomenal. You know, but when you met, you met Jack. You you, you met uh, Kenny. It's, you had a dream uh, to fulfil the the five year plan, and I think to be fair, on all of us that went there under them, we kind of. Bought into that sort of sort of circumstance, we're going to be as good as, and I think that's just the way they thought. You know, Jack was always a fantastic business person. Kenny, a magnificent manager, uh, player. Everybody was in, was in all of them. So when they're talking to you, they, they made you believe that you were actually the top players in the Premier League. They made you believe that, and they, and I think that's why the squad we put together, we weren't we weren't the most talented players. But what we were together, the teamwork we put in for each other, we grafted our socks off, you know. And you see the guys here, you know, it's every one of us, probably apart from Richard Bitchka, you know, we're, we're all happy, you know. But it's it was a great achievement that, that we put in and with such a, a smaller squad than, than what a lot, of, a lot of clubs done. And a lot of people hated us. A lot of people in the media hated us because we're a small town. And we went on and won a big competition off Manchester United and Arsenal. And we proved it. And people say we bought it. But Manchester United and Arsenal spent as much money as we did. We put a jigsaw piece together. And fortunately, and unfortunately for me, I broke my leg, which forced the club to buy Chris Sutton and get the SAS and, and win as a title. So for me, I take a big part in that. Because if I don't get injured, we don't have Sutton. And we might have retained the title maybe two or three seasons without Sutton, but now nah, we, we brought him in and he helped Alan to get all the goals. And to be fair, what a partnership it was. And that was my carrot to, to get me back uh, to full fitness, was to to split up the SES and make it GAS, gas. So instead of shooting everybody out of the league, we would uh, gas them out of the league. Yeah, rolling stones, <laughs> yeah, yeah. gas, gas, gas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but I, I was uh, I read some of this afternoon as well, Kev. That uh, because of your injury, when you came back, you were using your left peg and not your right peg. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You became left footed. I tell you, I mean, it's I, I mean, if when you when you've got time to think about things and learn new things, uh, that was the time for me. And 
I mean, I broke my leg, I had a pin in my leg, I had a walking pot on my leg, and I wasn't allowed to use my leg for three months. And it was as simple as that. So for me to take part in anything with the guys around the dressing room, I had to do something with my left foot. And, you know, I could kick the ball with my left foot, I could get out of trouble, but I wasn't. You know, I mean, that's probably 20% compared to 80% on my right foot. And where the, the Darwin end, it's called the brick, uh, the, where the community is and it's got we used to train that's where we, we basically got chains and got a couple of astroturfs in a smaller astroturf and we used to play two touch and it was one of stays on and all the boys turn up early to training go in the gym some would then come in play two touch and everybody's doing their work and uh, I would jump in and people are laughing because you can't do nothing apart from trying to do it with your left foot and honestly the first probably fortnight I was all over the shop uh, I was falling over I couldn't do nothing. I was like a little kid beginning to play football. And, you know, you're off, you're on the pitch, then you're off the pitch as quickly as could be. But then within three months later, you know, I was given as good as I got solely with my left foot. Uh, I was controlling it. I was pulling it out the air. Uh, it was unbelievable. And I thought, wow, got myself back. And I was back into going out on the grass and starting to play. And I just remember, and, and we're doing the training session about crossing finishing and finishing. I was on the right-hand side to cross it and I automatically turned back on my left and crossed it. And they were like, what are you doing? I went, I don't know. I said, my body just told me to turn back and cross it. And I kind of became left-footed for a little while. And I thought, this is really weird because everything I wanted to do. And I don't know if it was psychological with my, my right leg because that's the one I broke. But it was kind of weird. But it kind of turned my brain round and it took me a while to get it going. But it kind of made me two-footed and the best thing that ever happened to me because you see the goal that's on YouTube against Arsenal. I had it first time on my left foot, whereas I probably stuttered, stammered and kicked the ground or something uh, before it. But I wasn't. I was ready for it and I came back and uh, it was a great connection. So for me, the thing that I learned from football um, was how to watch it, how to learn from the coaches, how to understand the game of football and became left-footed. Yeah. And after mm. them two breaks, uh, John Hodgkinson said you, your career should have been over a long be long before then. Oh, thanks. I'm going to tear up in a minute. Yeah. But John was brilliant. Uh, I mean, John done me fix my leg. But it wasn't just a case of fixing your leg. It's fixing your brain as well. Uh, they don't really know your characters, the surgeons, uh, and especially the football surgeons that are connected with the football club. And, but John really got inside my head, and I, I don't know how because it's empty. So for me, he done really well. Uh, but going and seeing him every week, and I remember one of the first meetings we had with him, and he says, "Yeah, three months." And I took it. Oh, I'll be back in three months. So I was back in the gym, and my my wife hated it because she had to drive me in uh, to training, and I was straight in the gym. So I was I went to hospital, lost a week of my life. Uh, Monday morning, the following Monday morning. Uh, I was back in the gym uh, training. Uh, I just went, I thought I'd be back in three months. And funnily enough, within three months, I wasn't even any further forward. Uh, and I was seeing John again and again. He went, yeah, I'll be three months. And I thought, you're having a laugh. He said three months, three months ago. But he went, no, no, Kevin, it'll be definitely three months this time. Trust me, you'll be all right. And then within the three months, I was back playing in the reserves. Uh, I was probably... 90% fit at that time, but I was getting back. Uh, it was all psychological. Would I tackle people? Would I volley the ball again with a defender marking me? 
would I take a tackle for the back? So all these things they were obviously monitoring, uh, but they watched me very closely. Uh, Kenny watched me. The, I mean, the coaching staff all watched what I was like uh, very, very closely. And while I was watching the first team not run away with the Premier League, but give that big challenge, I just wanted to split up share on something. Uh, and there's no disrespect to the two guys because they were absolutely brilliant for us. I just wanted to split them up and be part of them. And whether I could play, and my luck was I could play right wing now, I could play left wing, and I also could play centre forward, and you, know, you could score goals. So for me, I fitted in right across the front line for Kenny. So that was an option for me, and you're just hoping that you can get as fit as you can and somebody then maybe get an injury, not a bad one, but get an injury to give you that opportunity. And, you know, I trained with six months with David Batty, and then I seen Bats getting back in with an opportunity. I could, I wasn't getting that opportunity because Sharon Sutton was still fit, and, and then it came Crystal Palace, and we lost Jason Wilcox. And that's when Kenny came calling, and uh, it was probably the most nervous moment. It was like a second debut uh, for me. I went out. Scored a goal, playing in the left wing, was flying, was absolutely buzzing. And as I said, John Humphrey, the full-back, you know, I mean, I was taking him to the cleaners and what a player he was, a good player, but he was a very tough opponent. And I've done a step over, got away from him. But as I was getting away, my leg planted down and he caught it again. And that was me, uh, back to Blackburn Infirmary. So that was a disappointing thing. But, uh, you know, I got my game, I got my goal. 100% record for winning the Premier League. Probably better than Shearer that year, actually. So it wasn't so bad. So my claim to fame was I broke my leg to get Sutton in. And I also got a 100% record uh, during that season. So for me, uh, to get a medal, I don't know if I deserved one. Because uh, I believed you were meant to be something like five to ten games. But Kenny had said, this is a squad game now, pal. You deserve it. You've done a big part. And we only won one game after that, and that was Newcastle. So if I don't play that game, we don't score. We might not have won the league for that one instance. So for me, it was a big, big part in it. And it took a, a hearty, long conversation for Kenny to actually convince me because me and David Batty at that time were kind of back in the side for he playing six games he played. I played one. And we were kind of thinking, do we really deserve a medal? Because the lads have been at it all season and we just come in for the glory. But we were part of it, and that's what Kenny said. You're part of the squad, and we got on with it and got a medal, and it's in a Pickford's box somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but rightly so, rightly, rightly so that uh, Kevin. And and uh, how did I mean? Obviously, I'm close to somebody that's suffered uh, quite a few injuries, and he's thankfully he's 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 back to peak fitness now. But it's been a long hard road. One of the things, and it's it's kind of a similar story because the Premiership was involved. The player I'm talking about, Matty James, I mean, Matty James obviously had to suffer, you know, the season. It was the last game of the, of the, um, of the season. And it was the, so the following season, uh, they, were in the, they won the Premier League. So all through that Premier League, it's his recovery, his recovery, his recovery. That played, but obviously you know yourself, you're in the gym, you're on your own. That's where, yeah, you're kind of, you're kind of isolated. So 
that plays a big part with your head while all the lads are out there and especially when they're on a, on a high and they're winning games and they're, you know, they're, they're firing to the top of the Premier League as, you, as Blackburn Rovers were. So how, how did you like, you know, how did you find that? It, it, it must have been tough for you. At the start, it was tough because you're on your own. But, you know, he's a good friend of mine now, Mike Pettigrew, a physio here in Blackburn. And he was the physio at the time. And just before Mike had retired, obviously, I broke my leg and Mike was a physio. And, and Mike was brilliant, a fellow Scotsman. And and he kept me going. Um, we were in the gym together. We worked together. Uh, and he, as I said, he kept me going. And then all of a sudden, Mike uh, left due to contractual kind of, not disagreements, but they couldn't agree anything with the management of the football club and, and Mike decided to, to to leave the club and we went away to get uh, new physios and try and get new physios in and that's where it was difficult for me because you're on your own, you're in a gym, you haven't a clue how to do a rehab so you're just plodding away the best you can and doing the best things that I can and you know we, we eventually got physios in but by that stage I was going down to Lily Shaw, I was coming back, I was speaking to Mike, Mike was giving me programmes or trying to do a couple of things, a physio at the club at the time uh, was giving me as well, Steve Foster. So you're trying to do all these different programmes to get fit. Um, but my dedication was, I believe, that through John Hodgkinson, and you, you're right, as they said there, Brent, my, the, men, the mental capacity you're carrying is, is, I could have gone the other way. But fortunately, yeah. and unfortunately for the club, David Batty got injured. And David Batty now was alongside me, and it was long term. So, he was with me for probably six months uh, and we're both in the gym and we both dragged each other through. You know, we go in one day and we're bored. Uh, we'd be jumping off the side onto a trampet with a weight and try to bounce the weight off a trampet and hit the ceiling. We're doing stupid things, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, da- no, very dangerous things, you know what I mean? It's crazy, but yeah, we did to do it. We're filling our time because we, we were so bored with... You know, and then we come up with challenges and he says, right, we've got to do a challenge and there's something stupid, like you've got to glue somebody's shoe to the, the dressing room floor and if you get found out that it's shoe, then there's uh, honestly different things you've got to do, 1,500 metres in the, the rower. So there was different challenges that we were doing with each other and, and, and it was a laugh, it ended up a laugh. So we had a laugh together with it uh, and, and Batch was mental, you know, and you think, for, for someone that didn't like football, he was one of the fittest guys I'd come across. But him pulling me through that stage and, and helping, both helping each other, really mentally toughened us up that we, we could get through it. You know, and he was there screaming at your ear and all that, like, you're Oxford, I'm Cambridge, you were having a race. And we'd have a boat race. You know, and two of us on the lower and having a boat race. Like, like, these are the things we were imagining just to do it, just to get things right. So, yeah, uh, brilliant. It, brilliant. And it yeah. was. You had to feel if we if I didn't have bats there, I, I think I might have struggled a lot more. It might have taken me a lot longer to get back, but it didn't. He was challenging to get back to try and get into midfield where Mark Atkins was doing a magnificent job in there with Tim Sherwood. And he was wanting to get in there. He could see it. He was chomping at the bit. And the quality of player that he was as well. So it, it kind of helped us both when they were doing it. You know, the it's we, we pushed each other through it, as I said, but I think for me, mentally, John Hodgkinson was the one that got me through it. And I mean, when I got back playing in 90, I think it was 98 World Cup squad got announced. And that's, I mean, I think it was after, it was either before or after it, uh, John Hodgkinson has said, like, it was the proudest moment that, that he'd ever come across. 
because my career should never have gone back to that level. And, and I mean, that's a photograph of 2000. Uh, and I mean, obviously, getting playing to 2000, you're international. I mean, you're 34 years of age, you've played in the World Cup, and it was, it was great for me. And to get back at the highest level, to play at the highest level, um, was something that, that, as I said, John Hoskinson said I should never have done. Uh, a lot of players had struggled to do that, and, and I got back to the top and probably higher, I, I would say, because I got to Euro 96, which I should never have been at. I was probably still... I wasn't international fit, shall I say. I wasn't fit enough for international football, but I was there. It was The good thing was it was in where we were stopping. It was it was back uh, Stratford-upon-Avon, so we were at local to where I was, and all my neighbours were coming, all England fans, all coming round to watch Scotland training, so it was good for me that they were coming round to see that, and it kind of puffed my chest up a little bit because it was absolutely brilliant. So for me, it was great. Yeah. Uh, and to get there, to even playing a game like I did, you know, I played in the first game against Holland, which I was so surprised about. Um, I just expected to be sat on the bench. But playing against Holland, missed the other two games. But to be part of that gave me the hunger and desire to, to stay at the top level. And I think uh, the 90s, even when we started the World Cup camp campaign uh, for 98, uh, I never started for Scotland. I was on the bench with John McGinley, Duncan Shearer. We had, we had guys like that playing for us at the time. Ali McCoy got injured and he was starting to get injured. So we were losing like top strikers. And then the opportunity arose for me. And my goal scoring was on fire at Blackburn. Uh, me and Chris Sutton were unbelievable. And everything I seemed to hit was hitting the back of the net. And it, it happened at internationals. I'm playing in a 5 3 2. Um, or some said it was a 5-4-1 and I managed to get six goals in about four and five games and got us to the World Cup and which everybody in Scotland was a, or every media, every journalist was basically calling his dad's army we're, we're too old, we'll never get there you're not as good as the Brenners or the Glaciers, the Laws we got to a World Cup uh, and, and we've done it we are as good as them and, and we all stood to be proud of it it's just a shame that we weren't in, uh, four years younger. Uh, we were all, a lot of us were in our 30s. And it was coming into, this was going to be our last opportunity and try and stay fit for it. And that was the worst thing that happened to me because I had a double hernia and I was at Blackburn uh, leading up to that with a massive double hernia and never trained. And Roy Hodgson was brilliant. I played the matches and didn't train. Scored goals for fun. Was having a good time. But then when we went to the World Cup, I had to train every day because of the media. And that was a nightmare because I could not run. And I really, really struggled. And so when it came to the games, it took a lot out of me. And uh, it was very, very difficult to try and get moving. It took me about 20 minutes to warm up in matches. And I mean, one or two of the lads gave me a bit of stick. But I said to them, I said, like, nobody knew, apart from the management team, that I had double hernia. Uh, and myself, uh, like, probably Colin Henry, the Blackburn boys did. But nobody else, and uh, but I had to train because Craig was adamant because the media was there, and I'd done it, but it was to my detriment because I couldn't perform on the pitch as the way I did for Blackburn, and you don't get the best out of it. And that, that was a disappointing thing, but it seats to their own of, of getting little injuries, and there was no way I was missing that World Cup uh, for nothing. Yeah, great insight. Well, you, you made your debut against Colombia. 
And then the second game, you were uh, down at Wembley, weren't you? But you were. Uh, tell us that story about you and Gordon Strachan. He, he took a good clobber and then he uh, had some chosen words for you. Oh, <laughs> thanks for reminding me. Oh, my God. This is an upbringing of a, a young player getting an international call up at last minute. And we're playing the, the last Rouse Cup, you know, second last Rouse Cup. And it was against Colombia. Uh, at Hamden and you know and it was really weird that you're playing and I've passed the ball to Gordon Strachan <laughs> and I told him to turn <laughs> and I didn't realise the Colombian was right on him <laughs> and he, he just took the wee man out and I swear to the wee man Gordon just he never let up and he just he says if, if you effing shout that again when there's somebody on me I'm going to effing do you in <laughs> and I just thought <laughs> I don't want to play for Scotland anymore. This is a nightmare. Uh, but no, the wee man was good after that. You know, you, you're learning with these guys and you're a backup. As a backup to Gordon Strachan was phenomenal when you're watching players like that. You're watching Ali McCoy's, the Morris Johnsons. You, you watch these guys and you can only learn from people when you watch them. And I think that's what I did. I tried to watch from them. My disappointing fact was that I couldn't take my, my goal scoring exploits from club. I couldn't take it into my country because... I generally was playing in a wider area all the time. And, of course, when you're playing in a wide area of your country, you probably get one chance a game. And if you get that one chance, you have to take it. And it's I probably was a, a three-chances guy. If I got three chances, I might get one or two goals. And uh, it proved that way in the 97-98 season. Yeah, well, you scored your first goal against Estonia. And a nice, uh, I must admit, it was a nice pink, uh, <laughs> pink strip with that. Salmon pink, just get salmon that right. Now. It was salmon pink. It was a great shirt for the beach. It was brilliant. Uh, but I didn't. It didn't matter what strip you were wearing. I just wanted to score a goal for my country. And um, I think I actually nearly missed it as well. Uh, it was a cutback. Uh, I think it was Scotty Booth cut it back. I, I won't forget it. And it was basically a safe foot tapper. The best ones to get as well and get you off and running and. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I celebrated like I was winning the World Cup and you could see the boys just looking at me. What are you doing? It's only Estonia. And I was like, oh, God. But they played, yeah. they played a lot, a, a big tough part in my career, Estonians, because I broke my arm against them later on in my career as well. So, you know, I, I, I like scoring against them, but uh, we always seemed to draw them in Euros and then we ended up struggling against them. Uh, and then, unfortunately, me being injury prone, broke my arm against them. So... Crazy, but then you did get a you get a decent one against Italy though, which you'll be remembered for. Even though you lost the game, <laughs> you scored a decent goal in that game. Hey, there's only two Scotsmen scored in Italy against Italy, and I'm one of them. So I'm very proud of that. Uh, there's not many uh, players have done it, you know. And, and you're talking the Douglases, the the Laws, all these guys. They've never scored against Italy in Italy, and I did. And to be fair, I nearly made a total ass of it as well. Uh, it was unbelievable. Uh, I remember I, the ball came up to me and I, I think it was Costa Cura was marking me and I've chested it down to Ian Jess and Ian Jess has struck it and as he struck it, I've just ran just in the hope that if the keeper saves it, he fumbles it and that's what's happened. Paluca fumbled it and the ball kind of sprung and, and went near and as it went near, it was like taking an eternity to come down and I keep t- I teach my children, I keep saying to them, you need to look at the ball and I took my eye off the ball for a split second and Paluca got up. And as he got up to spring to dive, I've looked at the ball again 
and I've hit the top of my foot. And I went, oh, no. And Paluka dived across the goal as the ball just looped up as slow as you could think it was and just looped up and over the top of him and just went over the line. And I, I, honestly, I couldn't believe it. I thought, I've just missed the biggest sitter in all my life here. Uh, but it was just lucky for me. It went in and it, it flipped over the line. But, you know, it was against a top Italian side, the top world-class goalkeeper. And to be fair, as I said, there's only two of us for Scotland scored in Italy and uh, yeah. I was one. Yeah. Do you, do, you, do you kind of, you know, do you kind of look back and, and think that maybe, you know, you wish you would have scored more goals for for Scotland when you look back on yeah. your career, Kev? Yeah, definitely. You know, nine goals I got, you know. Uh, but when I look back in my career, I think realistically my early career as a young Scottish international, I was a backup player. So I didn't really start a lot of games. So you're not really... I wasn't. I wasn't a type of. I mean, I tried to get. I was an impact player for speed, getting in behind teams when they were pushing forward, and you went on the counter attack. So realistically, for me, I was used more as a wider player. Um, I think the ninety-seven, ninety-eight season, when I got the six goals for Scotland. You know, for me, if I'd have played that that area as a striker throughout my career for Scotland, I think I'd have got more goals. But as I said, I was more of a right winger. Uh, and, and a substitute uh, for most of the caps uh, when I look back on it because it's great you got 53 caps but I, I look back and I got I had seven Pickford's boxes with shirts and jerseys from all over the world from different clubs and Scotland games I'd play I'd gone along to with number 16 15 18 on the back uh, and you think wow I just I'm so many I think if I go on journeys, I think I must have gone in about 80, 90 journey trips with the national squad, squads that I was in. But there was 30 that I never obviously got on. And obviously two years uh, on the sidelines and missing two years of international football, uh, I only had three goals. So it was, it was a long time and getting that run to be number nine, as you want to call it, uh, for the national team. And and I got that opportunity. But for me, it was a, a long, long, hard haul to get there and eventually made it my own um, until it was time to, to hang the boots up. Yeah. And of course, you had a good partnership, as you've already said. You had a great partnership afterwards with with Chris Sutton. And then the move to Newcastle, you were you were due to sign a contract, but... You weren't too sure. You thought it was going to be for you thought you thought it was for Blackburn, but it wasn't. It was for Newcastle. Oh, I guess he, you're pulling up all the old ones, isn't it? Uh, so, I Mr. Felt Brian like Kidd, Mr. Mr. Brian Kidd. Well, Brian, no, he was a nice guy. Don't get me wrong. Brian was a great fella, but for me as a manager at Blackburn Rovers, uh, I didn't see quite eye to eye, and unfortunately, I went from first choice striker in the Premier League to the fifth-choice striker in the championship. And I thought, that, that can't be right. Uh, so me being me, was chatting on his door every day and, and Brett probably come across players like that, a pain in the arse. But I had to do it for my own career, you know. Uh, I was asking him why. He kept saying, I'm not fit enough. I disputed it. I said, I'm as fit as anybody, if not fitter at my age. And I just wasn't getting an opportunity. But we had a young lad called Matt Janssen and he's probably, for me, the only player that came to Blackburn that I fretted for my position with. 
because I thought he was a talented young lad. And I thought, wow, if I'm going to lose it, I'm not going to lose it to a Swedish international and Martin Darling, a Per Pedersen to Denmark. I ain't losing it to these guys. But when this young kid came, uh, Matt Janssen, I thought, uh-oh, this kid reminded me of the way, a very similar way that I play. He's a couple inches taller, a little bit stronger, uh, and more of a dribbler. And I thought, he could. this kid could go places. And I thought, if I'm going to be there, I'm going to be stuck behind him. And I think that's what Brian Kidd seen, but without telling me. And basically, uh, I think it was Walsall we played. And I started the game for the, <laughs> the first game I started that season. And I'd done everything apart from score a goal. I was brilliant but just couldn't score that goal that would sort of cap that game off. And I was absolutely knackered. And I was in the shower after the game and Brian came in and he says, I spoke to the gaffer, which is Jack Walker at the time. And we've mentioned about a new contract for you. I says, that's brilliant. I'd love to. It would definitely interest me, depending on what it would be. And I think three days later, I was in Newcastle. So <laughs> he told me lies from when he came in. And he told me lies about the contract, uh, but what he did, he gave me a favour and sold me back to the Premier League. So for me, that side of it worked out well for me, because at 34 years old, to go back and play in the Premier League and, and have someone of Sir Bobby Robson's stature show the faith in you, because that was his first signing. Basically, it was a wow factor for me, you know, and the thing about that was I'd already signed before he even got to Newcastle. I mean, and that was, that was the weirdest thing. I'd signed for them and I hadn't even put pen to paper. So it was kind of strange, but it was how quickly news travels fast and, and that had happened. But it was, for me, it went well. But again, I played more in a wide position for them. Uh, I went in more as a rake out all the players that don't really want to play for Newcastle and show them what hard work is all about. And, and that's what it got me in to do. That's what I'd done. Uh, I wouldn't say the two years I spent there were the best two years in my career. But what I did was I helped Sir Bobby and his management team help the players, and especially with a lot of European, South American players, to understand what hard work and graft was about. And they ended up getting rid of a lot of players that didn't want to do that. And we found them out just by the fact that I was in there training with them and they didn't want to do it. So that was the ones they got rid of. Yeah. After your time at Newcastle, you then came back to the Northwest because you, you went to Preston North End and then several other clubs before you decided to call it a day, Kev. Yeah, I went gypsy footballing. No, I yeah. started. Well, we were under Bobby Robson. We had a guy called Mick Wadsworth who was there, who worked in the FA and basically got me interested in the, the coaching licenses and things. And I started, I started doing the coaching licenses up in Newcastle and you know, passing the licenses. Uh, I was doing them so I was really interested in the coaching side and starting to take that up as well and I came back I wanted to come back to the northwest because that's where we lived my wife was here my two daughters were here uh, and I thought uh, another year in Newcastle would have loved it uh, I gave it my best shot but Sir Bobby I think had plans of, of getting a player who was very similar to me and getting him in and a guy called Craig Bellamy and uh, I thought wow because Craig seemed to have followed me, the clubs that I've been at, he seemed to follow on and come to them. So a similar type of player. And for me, that was brilliant. Uh, I came back to the Northwest and I went on trial at Bolton and I'd never ever been on trial in my life. 
and I went on trial at Bolton and I kind of went walked in the dressing room and there was about six or seven international football players on trial. And I kind of thought, this is weird. A trial with 12 international football players. You should be snapping these guys' hands off to get us to play for Bolton. But Big Sam was having none of it. And eventually it was myself and Billy McKinley, a fellow Scotsman, were the last two on trial. But inevitably, I'd been a month where I hadn't been paid. I hadn't been getting any petrol money. I hadn't been getting any expenses or nothing. I'd been doing it out my own pocket. And it was time for me now to speak to Sam and say, look, is there a contract here or not? And David Moyes had been in touch. He says, why don't you come to Preston? And I was like, well, I don't really want to go in the championship just quite yet. I still believe I've got another year or two in the Premier League. And Bolton would have been ideal for me. Sam never took that gamble. Uh, and, I, and I decided to go and speak to Moisey. And Moisey offered me a really good deal at the time. Uh, you know, I took it. I went in there. But unfortunately, I went in there believing that I was going to be playing. And Moisey never played me. Uh, I was more sat on the bench, being the sort of father figure to, to David Healy, Jonathan Mackin and, and Richard Creswell. And that was a disappointing thing. And then, unfortunately, it was approaching Christmas time and I lost my mother. And as soon as that happened, I lost my way. I got an injury and I lost interest. Uh, I've got my head around it. Uh, got, got the grieving side of it done with mum and got back in the playing side. And by that stage, Moisey had decided that he was going to Everton. And I wished him fair good luck. Uh, but then... The opportunity to maybe get a caretaker job or the coaching side at Preston, I thought was going to be a major part. I thought it was going to be good. But Moise's assistant manager, Kelly Mahanlon, decided to phone me and say that the chairman wasn't going to renew my month-to-month -month contract. So I hung up on him and left. Just walked out on Preston. And I phoned up uh, Chef, uh, Chef Wednesday, uh, Terry Orris. And Terry says, yeah, come over for a month. And I went over for a month there and, and Terry and Wally Donicky were brilliant. But again, didn't really get a game. It was more trying to come off the bench to be an impact player. And at my age now, I was starting to scratch my head thinking, I'm better than these guys. I know I'm better than these guys. I'm proving I'm better than these guys. But I wasn't getting an opportunity to be better. So I was just there trying to help them. And at the end of the season, basically Terry went, sorry, Kevin, there's no contract. We don't even know if we've got a contract. We don't even know if we'll be here, so we're really sorry about it at the moment. And I went, fair enough, and left Sheffield Wednesday without a club and thought, what am I going to do? So I was getting the coaching stuff up to scratch. Uh, got in touch with Chicho Grabi, who was a player at Blackburn at the time. Spoke to him in Italian, had a chat with him. Got his agent to get in touch over in, in Italy for anybody that's, that's having uh, training over there. Uh, and I was lucky I got invited in by Palermo uh, under 21 stroke reserve who were on uh, in Italy. And I went training over there, which was fantastic because it was adding to what I was doing regarding my coaching. And so learning from what they'd done, I learned absolutely nothing in the coaching side because we'd done everything the exact same as what Roy Hodgson did. So I basically proved to me that Roy brought an Italian theory over to Blackburn, and I kind of knew, and I thought, wow, I can see what Roy was doing now, whereas when I'd done it with Roy, I couldn't really see it. So it, it kind of opened my eyes up to it in a wider way of, of football coaching, 
and then uh, trained with Palermo and, and learn why when Europeans or South Americans come to Britain, struggle, and it's a language barrier. And, and I learned that from, and I never thought about it, when I came to England and people couldn't understand what I said and I was speaking the same language, how difficult it is if these guys come over to Britain and don't speak English and we don't give them time to settle. So for me, looking at going into the coaching or the managing side of the game, that's the way that I interpreted it all. Uh, took it away with me back to England and got in touch with Mick Wadworth, who'd become the manager at Huddersfield. And I went to Huddersfield to just to play games at pre-season. And played in the reserves, scored two or three goals. And they basically said, Kevin, look, it's embarrassing, but the chairman would love you to come and play for us. But he's actually embarrassed because of the money he would offer you. And I says, look, I just want to play football. And I've asked you to play me in your reserve team. I'm not really worried about it at the moment. I'm not worried about the money. I says, but I just want to play. And he went, well, he's offering you £500 a week to play. And I, I just laughed. And I thought, look, I'll take it. I'll come and play. I says, but here's the deal. If I play and another club comes in and it's contractual, then I leave and you don't get anything. You can't take any fee, nothing. You just release and we just sever ties and I go. And he went, yeah, brilliant. And, and, I'd, and I'd done it, but I must admit, it was a downfall of me falling out the love of football. Yeah. And then after that, you went you went into coaching and working with uh, other TV networks as well, Kev. Yeah, I, I stumbled into the television stuff, uh, the radio. I went to work uh, as a good friend of mine now, Andy Bays, and Andy works with me on BBC Radio Lancashire. Yeah, and Andy was I met him, believe it or not, at the Virgin Swimming Pool, and he, he was a lifeguard attendant doing his university work at the time, and that's where I first met him. And then next thing I know, he told me he's working at Century FM and, and he's working with the legends. And uh, I thought, wow, you're working with Gary Owen. Mickey Thomas, Alan Kennedy, Graham Sharp. I was like, wow, it's a great programme. It's, it's funny. It's mental. And I thought, fantastic. And he went, yeah. He says, do you want to come on as a fifth legend? He says, I've spoke to the producer on the show and we want you as a fifth legend for Blackburn because they're in the Premier League. And I was like, yeah, I'd love it. And that was me. That was my step into to working on the radio. But it was a baptism of fire because there was no help. It was you had to learn quickly. Uh, there was no silver spoon and someone taking your hand and, and getting you there. You had to drive, you had to learn how to set up an ISDN machine, you had to learn how to talk, uh, you had to learn how to like, uh, do uh, cool commentaries, you had to learn how to do brief interviews when they come to you, how to do it for five seconds, for ten seconds, and the people talking in your ear. So there was a lot of self-learning in there while asking people for help and kind of managed it and I was getting in there in the studios I was doing quite well in the live programs and then one day we, we had Graham Sharp out at a game for Everton we had Alan Kennedy out uh, at a Liverpool match and myself and Gary Owen were in the studios and Gary went well uh, I'll, I'll open the studio program up I'll present the start and um, you can just sit back and, and join in with the chat we have and have a bit of banter with everybody so I thought brilliant great so we goes into the first part of the show and it's gone really, really well. And right, we'll have a break and it's coming to the break. We get, I think it's a four-minute break. 
And Gary went, Kevin, Kevin, I, I need to nip to the loo. I'll be back in a minute. And Gary Owen disappeared to the loo. And I'm looking at the clock, and the clock's ticking down, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, Gary, where are you? And I'm looking round at the window behind, and nothing's happening. There's nobody there. I'm, I'm, try, I'm, I'm talking down the mic. I'm going, is there anybody, producer, are you there? Is anybody there? I says, hey, somebody needs to go and see Gary. He's in the toilet. He might have locked his cell in. I says, he's too on. The producer's going, Kevin, there's two minutes left. Don't worry about it. He'll be there. Kevin, there's one minute left. Don't worry, he'll be there. And I'm like, no, but this time my arse is twitching like mad. And I thought, oh, what am I going to do? And then he went, Kevin, there's 30 seconds left. You're going to have to present the programme. Gary has got the runs. And I thought, oh, no. And I said, present the programme. Are you having a laugh? And he went, no, 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 you're going to have to present it now. So you're going to have to open up. You've got 15 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. I hadn't a clue what I was going to say. And basically, he just says, Kevin, live. And I just sat there on the microphone and went, uh, welcome back. Uh, Gary Owen has had to nip out for a short while, but it's me, Kevin Gallagher, the fifth legend. And I just rabbited the biggest load of shit you can ever come out with. And I tell you what, it must have been the best listening radio ever. And I turned round, and here's Gary Owen sticking his two fingers up at the window. He's giving me pelters. And I thought, you shit, I couldn't believe it. It's the biggest yeah. had baptism of fire in football when the manager threw me in against Glasgow Rangers in front of 42,000 people. But this was, you're talking live on a radio show that you're thinking they've got hundreds of thousands of listeners in there. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, my God. And to be fair, that was it. And I never looked back. I loved it. And that kind of steamrolled for me. And, and I was doing that every day. I was going, uh, I was doing that every week. Uh, every night we were doing it, and then we'd be doing it on a Saturday at the match. And I, I loved it, and I fell into it. And unfortunately for me, the kind of the coaching side of it took a sideline, and I didn't want that to happen. I wanted to be the media to be the sideline. And before I knew it, like, it was two years. And unfortunately for, for me, uh, Century FM got taken over by another company, and my contract was up, so it wasn't going to be renewed. But fortunately for me, Andy Bays had moved on uh, and moved over. So I had a short spell with uh, Radio Rovers for Blackburn Rovers. And then Andy Bays had left and he'd gone to work with Radio Lynx. And then he phoned me and he says, I'm at Radio Lynx now. Uh, what, do you fancy coming in doing stuff for Radio Lynx? And, and that's, that was my big move over. And that's where I... Sort of been there now for I don't know how many years. It's yeah, because you, 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 I'm going to say you've been part of the uh, become part of the furniture now, haven't you, at Radio Lancashire? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's amazing how many time passes, and you know I just enjoy it. Uh, you know when you retire for football, you know I I became a big Blackburn Rovers fan, uh, and I've followed them thick and thin. I see how different managers have come in, they've gone uh, within days, some of them, and. Uh, I've seen it all. I've seen new owners come in and I've been part of it all. And, you know, it would be nice now to actually be able to speak about Blackburn being back in the Premier League, but it's a tall order for them. You know, they need that little bit of luck, I think, in a couple of maybe decisions last season with uh, referees. It might have been a difference from losing to winning. Uh, and they might have been in the playoffs and I might have got a chance to at least see them in there. But, you know, hopefully next season, Tony Mowbray again, a tall order probably needs about six or seven players and hopefully he can get them in 
and get the players in that, that can do a job and, and hopefully challenge this year for the top six because just before lockdown it looked it looked really good. But then three games after lockdown it looked really bad. But that's the way Blackburn Rover seasons have been and it's been good football, but it'd be nice to see them back in the Premier League, I must admit. And I must admit so I'm biased. But I'd like to see them alongside Preston and Burnley. I like to see the three teams in there because it's good for us with BBC Radio Lancashire in the North West to get the teams and get them in the top division. It'd be brilliant for us because, uh, I mean, when I went to League One with Blackburn, I've gone round grounds that I didn't even knew existed. <laughs> and that was the thing. And that was my ignorance of the, the lower levels of, of league football. But I soon found out about them and, and got to learn about them and, and we went to these stadiums and, and commentated about them and it was brilliant and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a great part and it was great to have actually played a football career at stadiums in the FA Cup but to actually go and actually commentate in these grounds, it's, it really opens your eyes up and the atmosphere of smaller clubs and, and it's, it just I've, I've really enjoyed my time with it. Yeah. Anything to add on that, Brent? No, I just think it's been uh, just on on the Blackburn Rovers one there. I mean, uh, when they appointed Tony Mowbray, I mean, obviously Kevin, you know him uh, a lot better than I do, but I think I think it's been a very 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 good appointment for Blackburn Rovers, and I I kind of think he's if Blackburn board stick with him, you know, which I'm sure they will, it, it could like be the same scenario as Sean Dyche at Burnley, you know, where he's big part of the fittings and he can get it just how he wants it. I think in yeah. the end, Tony Mowbray is the man to take Blackburn where you and probably all the Blackburn supporters want him to be. And me being from East Lancashire back in the in the Premier League. And I think he's the man to do that. I think in a minute, definitely, you know, and I know a lot of people were calling for his head and he made different decisions and, and people weren't happy with it. But that's his decisions. And he's made some decisions that I disagreed with and thought, why has he done that? have come out on top and think, well, who am I to argue with it? Because he's the manager. And he makes those decisions. He knows it. Um, there might be one or two he's probably regretted. And, but at the end of the day, for me, we've got to stick with him. He's got something going at Blackburn at the minute. He's got the crowd back at the football club. Well, not at the minute, obviously, but he's got had the crowd back uh, with the football club again. He's got them back in that side. And I always said that the crowd will come back when you do it on the grass. And that's what Tony got them doing. You know, League One, yes, it was a kind of easier league for Blackburn, but he got the players in at the right time. They'd done the right things. And getting that winning feeling back to the football club and they get promoted, they come back to the championship and you think, wow, we're back here. But then the fans' expectations were so high. It was so hard to actually tell them, by the way, we're not a Premier League club anymore. We've been in League One. We are just a League One at at the minute in the championship. So we've got to stabilise ourselves in the championship to really become a championship side at the moment. And that's what Blackburn are. They're a a mid-table championship side at the moment. And if we can punch above our weight, we possibly could get to the playoffs. And that's where we're at. And hopefully Tony's out there and the scouts are out there and we discover another Bradley Dack. Because that guy, until he got his injury, you know, he's a phenomenal player. And his combination with Danny Graham, who's no longer at the club, was brilliant. But Tony's gone out, he spent 15 million on two centre-forwards who at the minute have struggled and you're just hoping two young lads and hopefully they can maybe get the goal-scoring boots on next season and fingers crossed for the two of them because they're young and they do their best and and they can start scoring goals for for Blackburn and and pick them up. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, uh, it's been great having you on, Kevin, tonight. It's been really fantastic. Uh, and I'm saying it because we've had varying guests on the show and they've all been they've all been very, very good and all different insights into their careers and everything. But uh, in terms of yourself, in, in terms of everything that you've done from start to finish and then going into your media, uh, it's been great. It's been a great insight. And I'm, I'm really pleased that you're... You've given us our your time, which is valuable tonight, and I really appreciate that. Thanks very much. No, you're welcome. You know, it's it's glad to share all these, uh, you know, what I mean, stories and things like that. I mean, there's millions of things down there that you can talk about. It's it's just sometimes getting trigger points and, and pointing in a direction. But you know, is when you're covering your life story, when you don't realise how much you've actually done until you do these things, and you know. I, I've done one before and we're only meant to be on an hour and a half and I don't think we covered past Dundee United. So it was, it's one of those things. <laughs> and and I, I know I can talk, but when you cover so much in a career before and after, uh, there is a lot to talk about and, and it's, uh, it's a pleasure to talk about it and, and it's, it's good out there for the listeners to, to tune in and listen and it's, it's thanks to them for, for listening to it as well. Yeah. Cheers, Kev. been brilliant, Kev. Been brilliant Kevin. Speak soon. Keep See, up the good work. Cheers, guys. Speak to you later. Top man.